0: Before listening to this episode, please note that the most recent episodes entitled Wretched John are part of a connected narrative and should be listened to in the order of their release to understand the full context of the story. However, all other episodes of Forgotten are standalone and can be listened to in any order. Thank you for listening to The Forgotten Podcast. This is Wretched John, and I'm Ronnie Brown. John remained in this enslaved condition until near the end of 1746, when the nightmare of his plight came to an end. Another slave trader that had come to live in the same island approached Clow, offering employment to John. Initially, Clow refused, but eventually he changed his mind, probably to rid himself from the apprentice that had become a nuisance and a sickly burden. But in his new position, John was soon properly clothed and fed, quickly becoming a trusted worker and companion of his employer. He soon lived in plenty, and prospered personally under this new partnership. His employer owned several factories along the coast of Africa. These were not manufacturing facilities, as one might think the word suggests, but were holding prisons for slaves. Slaves would be captured outright or bartered for from African chiefs, then brought to the factories and corralled like animals. These structures with their high walls topped with jagged glass shards were sites of indescribable abuse to these captives. There they were inspected. If found fit, they were branded on the chest and imprisoned within factory walls. While waiting for slave ships to arrive, they were beaten into submission, humiliated, and most often the women slaves were raped and abused. John, who not long ago had been the recipient of the kindness of slaves, without which he would have doubtless died was jointly in charge of his employer's slave factory in Kitam he made himself at home with the ruthless nature of such a position the wealth of which afforded him a life which did not deny him any sensuous pleasure he lived seamlessly among the godless pagans around him indulging himself in sexual promiscuity among the african women And experimenting with the tribal customs associated with voodoo and black magic. He describes his manner thus: quote, The admonitions of conscience, which, with successive repulses, had grown weaker and weaker, at length entirely ceased. And for a space of many months, if not some years, I cannot recollect that I had a single check of that sort. At times I have been visited with sickness. And have believed myself near to death, but I had not the least concern about the consequences. In a word, I seemed to have every mark of final impenitence and rejection. Neither judgments nor mercies made the least impression on me." Quote. While John was living as such, little did he know that the letters he had sent to his father in England during his time of slavery had reached their destination. John's father appealed once again to his employer, Joseph Manistee, for help in aiding his son. Manistee had a trade ship scheduled to sail to the African coast that year in search of gold, ivory, camwood, and beeswax. Manistee instructed Captain Swanick, the master of his ship, the Greyhound, to search for the captive son when he made his stops along the African coastline en route to Sierra Leone. By early 1747, Captain Swanick had arrived on the coast of northern Africa and made several inquiries as to the whereabouts of John in Sierra Leone and nearby ports of commerce. The only clue as to his location were those that said he was probably deep inland trading for slaves. With him at such a great distance, the captain decided to put off his search and continue his voyage. As providence would have it, though, these reports were false. John was presently at Kittam, on the coast of Sierra Leone. He was intending to go inland, but had waited several days for supplies due to come in soon. As the Greyhound passed by, an acquaintance of John, who happened to see the passing ship lit a fire on the beach, a signal to the passing ship that they were interested in trading goods. Initially, Captain Swanick purposed to continue on, but changed his mind and dropped anchor. The merchant rode over to this vessel in a canoe, and in the course of their conversation, the captain mentioned his search for young John. The man reported that John was within an hour's journey from where they stood. The captain immediately came to shore and was led directly to John. The two sat and discussed the course that had brought them together and were rather amazed at the coincidence of the encounter. Captain Swanick informed John that his father had received his letter requesting help and Joseph Manisty had instructed the captain to search for and return John to England. Initially, John recoiled at the idea of returning, later writing, quote, had an invitation from home reached me when I was sick and starving in the plantains, I should have received it as life from the dead. But now... Heard it at first with indifference, end quote. John was now comfortable in his hedonistic lifestyle and was unwilling to conform to the norms of English life. This surprised Captain Swanning. But knowing how important the young man's return was to his father and to the shipowner, he conjured up a believable tale of a distant relative of John's that had recently died and left him a considerable yearly sum as an inheritance. The story made up by the shrewd captain had just enough of an element of truth so as to be believed by John, who did have some expectation of such from an aged family relation. This news sent his mind to England, not so much to his father, but to Polly. In all, he never forgot about his love, but put the thought of going to her out of his mind, knowing he could not provide for her the living a woman of her societal state would require. Such an inheritance, if it be true, changed everything. A glimmer of hope dawned in his mind that he could possibly possess the love of his life. On top of this, Captain Swanick further promised that he would be his guest on board the Greyhound and that no expectation of service would be placed upon him. John would lodge in the captain's cabin, eat dinner at his table, and be his constant companion throughout the voyage home. To John, the offer was too good to refuse. And so within a few hours, the African coast disappeared from John's sight. Was not bound for England straight away, but set a course to finish its trade route. Following the coastline of Africa, the crew would sail another thousand miles further south toward the equator. Their cargo search was not slaves, but for commodities such as gold, ivory, cam wood, and beeswax. These items were particularly difficult to search out and far more time-consuming than collecting slaves, resulting in a voyage along the African coast of a full year from when John came aboard. Once their African trading was complete, the homeward voyage would continue across the Atlantic to South America, then north through the West Indies off the coast of the American colonies to Newfoundland, and from there homeward to England. In that time, just as before on other ships, John would thoroughly try the patience of his captain to the point of regretting ever having set eyes on the young man. On this occasion, even more so seeing that John was not a deckhand, but a passenger, a guest of the captain with no responsibilities to occupy his time. John later wrote, I had no business to employ my thoughts. My whole life went awake was a course of most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer. Not content with common oaths and imprecations, I daily invented new ones, so that I was often seriously reproved by the captain, who was himself a very passionate man, and not at all circumspect in his expressions. Specializing in mockery, profanity, and mischief, John was never too fond of alcohol, but he was always willing to make an exception for a good time. He recalled, quote, sometimes I would promote a drinking bout for a frolic's sake, as I termed it. For though I did not love the liquor, I was sold to do iniquity and delighted in mischief, End quote. One night, while anchored in the River Gabon, John proposed a drinking game among a handful of men. The challenge was to see who could hold out the longest, taking alternating drafts of gin and rum, not from a drinking glass, but from a large seashell. Being slight in build, the young man was no match for the older seaman. After just a few rounds, John's brain was on fire. No doubt remembering some of the wild ritual voodoo dances from Africa, he leaped onto the deck and began to dance like a madman. While doing so, his hat blew off his head overboard into what he thought was a longboat tied to the side of the ship. He was mistaken. The longboat was nowhere within reach. In a drunken haze, he climbed over the railing to go after the hat. But at the last moment, someone grabbed his shirt and pulled him back. This was yet another near-death experience seeing as, although being a sailor for many years, he did not know how to swim, and the swift current of the river would have quickly removed him from any hope of rescue. This is just a single example of the near misses, aggravations, and disturbances at the center of which John could be found. And although his life hung in the balance because of his own foolery on more than one occasion— he gave no thought to the reformation of his manners or of the religion of his mother. By this time, the pangs of conscience were diminished to the point of non-existent, and even when brought to the point of death, he gave not the least thought of concern for divine retribution. Of March 1748, after a brief stop for cod fishing off the banks of Newfoundland, the Greyhound was carried speedily homeward to England with strong winds out of the west. This had been a long voyage, and although they were making great progress on their return, the ship was very vulnerable. After 15 months in the warm waters near the equator, the structure of the vessel was significantly weakened. Its ropes and sails were frayed and worn. The ship was in no way prepared for the cold North Atlantic tempests that were such a common occurrence. Nine days into their final leg of the journey, John picked up a book to pass the hours away. There was very little in the way of literature on board the ship, so his selection to choose from was small. Although he had no religious inclinations, He carelessly picked up a volume of Thomas Akempis' Latin work, The Imitation of Christ, translated into English by Church of England clergyman George Stanhope, Dean of Canterbury in the late 17th century, who added meditations and prayers for sick persons within its text. Despite having read portions of this book before with great indifference, giving no earnest contemplation of its words, this time was different. Thomas A. Kempis' 320-year-old words cracked the cold-hearted conscience of John. It is not exactly clear which words from the volume had such a profound effect on the young sailor. But a brief perusal of the book brought forth these lines that seem eerily relative to his pattern of life. Quote, the more signal in particular God's goodness hath been, the heavier and more insupportable no doubts will be that wrath, which hardened and impenitent wretches treasure to themselves against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, so that our blessed Lord's admonition to the impenitent man is in effect the voice of reason and every man's own conscience. Each affliction, each escape calling out loudly to the receiver, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Another paragraph reads And how indeed can it be expected that infinitely worse should not come, when neither severity will drive, nor compassion and kindness lead to amendment, when neither correcting nor sparing can do any good? The circumstances of these men are dangerous, whose distemper only is strong but theirs must needs be desperate and mortal, whose very remedies feed and inflame their disease. If pruning and manuring be both vain, the next sentence upon the barren tree is, Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? The axe is already laid to the root, and if it be lifted up and give the fatal stroke, the end of every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit We are expressly told, shall be to be burnt with unquenchable fire. John was suddenly startled by the contents of what he had just read. Upon recollection of this moment, he later wrote, While I was reading, an involuntary suggestion arose in my mind. What if these things should be true? I could not bear the force of the inference as it related to myself. And therefore, I shut the book presently. My conscience witnessed against me once more, and I concluded that, true or false, I must abide the consequences of my own choice. I put an abrupt end to these reflections, quote. The thoughts of God and the threats of divine wrath pounded ceaselessly on a heart that had for years kept them at such a great distance." After abruptly putting the book away, he tried diverting his attention with conversation and other distractions aboard the ship. But by nightfall, he made his way below deck and slipped into a slumber with relative ease. But in the early morning hours of March the 10th, 1748, John was suddenly awakened by the sound of wooden planks breaking and the spray of cold seawater upon his face, followed by a cry from the deck that the ship was going down. During his sleep, the ship had encountered a horrific storm. The weakened vessel was being tossed helplessly by gale-force winds and towering waves, one of which had violently blasted through a large section of timbers on the upper bow, filling the cabin where John was sleeping with water. Panicked by what was taking place, John scrambled for the ladder to go on deck, but just before reaching the top, the captain called for him to bring up a knife with him. While quickly following the order, Another sailor made his way up the ladder onto the deck, only to be met by an enormous wave which washed him out to sea. He was never seen again. The ship indeed was sinking. Frantic crewmen manned the pumps and buckets trying to keep the vessel afloat, while others tried to stem the tide of waters flooding in below decks with repairs. Boards were stripped from other parts of the ship to patch holes in the hull while blankets and clothing were used to stop the leaks. But this was a losing battle as the ship seemed to take on more water than that being expelled. The boat no doubt would have sunk had it not been for the unusual cargo on board. Such great quantities of beeswax and light African cam wood added to the floundering ship a great buoyant effect, buying time for repairs and for baling water. John, with a team of others, manned the pumps. During such time, as he worked feverishly, he tried to lighten the mood by telling a companion beside him, quote, in a few days, this distress would serve us to talk over a glass of wine, end quote. The startling response of his tear-filled shipmate was, quote, no, it is too late now. The sobering mood of pessimism began to overwhelm John with desperation at the thought that these may well be the final moments of his life. By morning's light, the winds had somewhat subsided, but the sea continued to be treacherous. The Greyhound was still very much in danger of going under. Somewhere around nine in the morning, John made his way to the captain to discuss the ship's peril. During the conversation, apparently after a suggestion for shoring up the ship was made, John thoughtlessly replied, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. Walking away, he was shocked by his own words, muttering, Mercy? Mercy for me? In that moment, like a flash, every blasphemous rant, Every godless action, every fornicating scene of life experience came crashing down on his conscience, causing him to whisper under his breath, What mercy can there be for me? Each time the ship turned down following the churn of the sea, he expected it to rise no more. And if the Christian religion be true, then there would be no forgiveness found at his demise. After nine hours at the pump, he was exhausted and found a bed to lay on, resolved that it may prove to be a watery grave. But when he had only an hour of sleep, he was awakened to help continue the efforts of maintaining the boat. Unable to further pump, he lashed himself to the helm and steered the ship until midnight. During such duty, he was afforded time to reflect upon the previous notions that had so troubled him. While steering the battered ship through the billowing waves, his mind looked back upon all his youthful attempts at religious reformation, his near misses and deliverances for which not one word of thankfulness to God ever escaped his lips. Then there was the immoral course of life that lay behind him. Such profane and wicked depths, he thought, were too deep to entertain any thought of pardon from God. The scriptures themselves cried out against John like monsters rising from the depths of childhood memory. They growled, quote, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame." End quote. Like each successive crashing wave which was surely about to sink the Greyhound to the depths of the sea, the incessant mounting accusation of John's sins were dragging his soul to an eternal doom. But at this moment, a ray of hope broke across the horizon. At six o'clock that evening, a report came that the ship's hold was free from water. With this news, a new thought came to the fore in his mind. Quote, I now begin to think of that Jesus whom I had so often derided. I recollected the particularities of his life and of his death, a death for sins not his own, but as I remembered, for the sake of those who, in their distress, should put their trust in him. End quote. Wretched John began to cry out to God. Unbelief was so rooted within his heart that he could not as yet cry out in faith, but he cried out to God for a means by which he might obtain faith. His mind recalled the words of Jesus in Luke 11:13, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more, Shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? End quote. He thought, quote, I have need of that very Spirit. If this book is true, the promise in this passage must be true likewise. I must therefore pray for it, and if it is of God, he will make good on his word. End quote. God was true to his word. In his reckoning, John concluded that although he could not say from his heart that he believed the gospel, yet he would, for the moment, take it for granted, trusting that by studying it he would be more and more confirmed in it. For the Lord had shown him the absolute necessity for some substitute to stand between a righteous God and a sinful soul. The gospel message of Jesus Christ was the only possibility of hope while being surrounded on every side with black, unfathomable despair. He later expressed the experience of that day in a poem which reads quote, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. Thus while his death my sin displays, in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon, too. End quote. John would recall how that in the following hours, he saw as it were the hand of God displayed in favor on behalf of himself and the ship's crew by calming the raging seas. The winds now became moderate, but still continued fair driving the greyhound nearer to port. Although in desperate need of repair and low on rations, the ship and its crew were spared a horrifying end. Until his dying day, March the 10th, would be annually remembered by John as, quote, the day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters, end quote. John's story will continue with our next episode. Wretched John is a Forgotten Podcast special series and an Unseen Hand media production written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Forgotten Podcast. Forgotten is available on all the most popular podcasting apps, so be sure to subscribe. Also, please stop in and leave a rating and review on iTunes. Lastly, this podcast would not be possible without an ever-growing group of generous supporters. To find out how you can support The Forgotten Podcast, just go to ForgottenPodcast.com slash support. And as always, thanks for listening.